Welcome to the ninth episode of the What Happened Last Week in Kurdistan podcast. As always, this podcast is based on the newsletter, What Happened Last Week in Kurdistan. And if you go to our Instagram, WHLW under dash Kurdistan, you can find a link to the newsletter. As always, I am your host, I am Gilles Shwani, and today's episode is going to be divided into two parts. The first part is news from all parts of Kurdistan. So we're going to start off in Rojava, move down to Bashur, Iraqi Kurdistan, move to Rojhalat, Eastern Kurdistan or Iranian Kurdistan, and finally, some international news relating to Kurdistan. The second part is an interview with Kashkol director and co-founder Marie Labrosse. Starting off in Rojava, there is only one piece of news, however, it could be some incremental piece of news. Russia piling pressure on the SDF in many different ways. After the death of Soleimani, who was one of the key players in aiding Assad, as well as Turkey's new war front in Libya, the Assad government's hand in bargaining with the SDF seemed to drastically weaken, and none knew this more than Russia, who unfortunately played one of the dirtiest hands this week to make sure that the SDF do not gain leverage in this situation. At the start of the week, they arranged a meeting for both the Turkish and Syrian head of intelligence, aiming to reach an agreement to hold a joint attack against the SDF. Their next action was to veto any UN aid reaching SDF-held areas, before finally accusing the SDF of releasing ISIS prisoners, something which the SDF vehemently denied. So this was something that we all worried about when the deal with Russia was placed when the deal with Russia was struck. Because when the SDF are put in a position where they have no other option, that naturally gives the leverage to Russia and the Assad regime. So now we're seeing what that leverage is turning into. The Kurds are essentially isolated in that region, Turkey to the north, Syria to the south, and the Kurdish regional government in South Kurdistan don't seem to be able to, or rather willing to, it's anyone's guess to be honest at this point, to help. So in the coming few days, we're going to see what this deal might potentially lead to and what this means for the SDF, although my premonition would be it will lead to something very bad. And we might see the autonomy that the SDF has been fighting for with the Assad regime before striking a deal with them. That autonomy might be lost, or any chance of it, and a rewrite of the constitution, of the Syrian constitution, might also be deemed impossible. We'll see what happens, but we can only hope for the best right now. Man, that was a heavy, heavy thing to start the podcast with, but we're moving on to Bashur now, to South Kurdistan, Iraq. There's some controversy over there as well. Turkish strikes areas in Sinjar, resulting in Yebasha commander dying. Turkish airstrikes targeted the Yezidi Yebasha, or YBS, however you pronounce it, forces in Sinjar, resulting in the death of commander Zerdesh Shingali, as well as several others. The Yebasha is recognized as an official military force and is funded by the Iraqi government. The government, however, has yet to take any actions on this. This... This... This boils my fucking blood. You know why? Because what was happening with Iran and uh, Iran and America? The Iraqi government was so loud about it. They were 
putting all their forces into saying you have to respect Iraqi sovereignty, right? And then an official military, an official military force, which is funded by the Iraqi government, which is specifically put in place to protect the Yazidi people. They're attacked. And what does the Iraqi government do? Nothing. They do nothing. This is... I know, I understand. I understand that when it comes to politics, morality is not the standard. I get that. I don't accept it, but I get it. I understand it. But this is just... Here's the thing. The Yazidis have seen so much trauma this decade. Or at least last 10 years, I guess it's a new decade. But they've seen so much trauma. They've seen so much tragedy. They were targeted for ethnic cleansing. Many, many of them died. Many of their women was enslaved or were enslaved. And now they have a force to protect themselves. And Turkey is using the um, oh yeah, the excuse of terrorism to attack these people. The Ebesha was organized and created by the Yepega, the YPG. And Turkey sees them as a terrorist organization. So obviously any military which had any link to them at any point of their history is seen as the same thing. And believe you me, the same thing is waiting for the Iraqi Kurdistan. And the fact that the Iraqi government is saying nothing. <sighs> I have no words. I really have no words. I really wish things were different. But they're not. Moving on from that and to some more not so happy news. Private sector in Kurdistan is lawless when it comes to the rights of their staff. Since the KRG's economic crash in 2014, hiring has been at an all-time low and is only used for special cases, doctors, teachers, etc. This has resulted in people applying for jobs in the private sector, but since the private sector doesn't have the government's eyes on it when it comes to their workers' rights, and then considering the lack of options in these jobs for the workers, it spells disaster. So essentially they have a monopoly over the job market. And here are just some of the cases that workers are facing in the private sector due to, I suppose, lack of application of workers' rights and regulations. Anyways, here are just some of the cases. So, timing their actual bathroom breaks. Seven days per week jobs that cut salaries for taking any time off. Employers not paying their staff based on their initial work agreement and... Uh, this is great, you're going to love this. Not sitting down during their entire work shift, and I quote here, as it may put customers off. The government and parliament really need to do more to look out for their citizens. And remember that just because these people do not officially work for the government, it doesn't mean that the government isn't responsible for their rights. Uh, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just giving up on the... Kurdish government in, in Bashur. It's... Alright, moving on. I'm sorry, guys, I know this is... <laughs> I'm 
like I, I get it. It's very heavy, all of this, and I'm really, you can you can hear it. you can hear it on me how much it just annoys me and just pisses me off. And I'm really I'm in the same boat as you. So let's get through this together, and I promise we're ending the news this week with three fantastic bits of news. Okay, just let's keep on chugging on. Okay, next bit of news. PUK member found dead in Erbil, in Holer, after arrest by security forces. A member of PUK was found dead after he was taken away by Erbil security forces earlier this week. The marks on his body show that he was tortured, and an autopsy is taking place now to further see what happened to him. PUK themselves are said to be investigating this matter, although no statements have been made by any high-ranking officials from within the party. Obviously, it's very sad news. And it's not something that is too surprising, sadly enough. But before jumping to any sort of conclusion, uh, let's wait for the autopsy and let's wait for an official statement. And moving on to some other news. Approvals have been made for China to build a new consulate in Erbil. So China started or opened their first consulate in Kurdistan back in, I think it was December 30th, 2014, if I'm not wrong. I know it's 2014. Um, I could be a little off on the date there, but yeah. So now they have permission to build a new building for their consulate. Solar panels to increase Kurdistan's power by 75 megawatts, while it's claimed that an additional 500 megawatts have already been added. So this is said to be a solution to Kurdistan's power problems, electricity problems. But I don't believe anything when it comes to the electricity in Kurdistan because we were promised 24-hour electricity back in 2008. It's now 2020. So yeah. And also this, this week in the news... KDP announced that they will hold their own conference. So following the PUK conference and the Islamic Union conference, KDP is set to also be holding their own conference this year. All right, as promised, that was the end of the gloomy news. And now we're on to our three items of news, our final three items of news. And they're all happy news. And we're starting with, of course, Boycott Weekly. Some good news finally coming from both Iraqi and KRG agriculture ministries that have pushed harder on their ban of Turkish eggs entering the country, with a lot more emphasis on local production. Yay! KRG is now sending out committees to make sure that the prices of these eggs stay within the legal range for costs. Earlier this week, a truck containing Turkish eggs was caught by Kurdish authorities. <laughs> I'm very happy. You can understand, right? Um, after all that sadness and melancholy, melancholy, Mela melancholy, melancholy—that's the word, melancholy. Um, this is <laughs> this is really happy. This is really happy. So, you know, uh, whenever local production is on an upswing in Kurdistan, I'm always happy. So let's let's keep on this great work. And moving on to Rojhalat, to Iranian Kurdistan, Eastern Kurdistan, a basket of work. Some happy news also from Rojhalat. 
this week, and we're heading to Senandaj in Sina, in eastern Kurdistan, where a local woman named Gulchin has opened her own factory to produce straw baskets and has managed to also hire over 60 locals. That's awesome. That's really awesome. Because uh, we covered stories about the Kolbers, the uh, couriers in uh, in Iranian Kurdistan and Eastern Kurdistan, in Rojalat, quite a few times here. And the work they have to do is really, uh, no pun intended, it's backbreaking. And it's very dangerous for them also because they're often targeted by Iranian um, Iranian uh, authorities and killed. Last year, 259 of them were killed, if I'm not wrong on that number. Uh, so to see a local Kurdish woman opening her own factory is great for so many reasons, one being the fact that she's a woman and she's opening her own factory in one of the most sexist places in the world, which is Iran. Second being that this is going to help boost the local, local economy and it might even help, you know, other Kurdish people in that region and it might inspire them and encourage them to open their own businesses. And third, it's just happy news. <laughs> it's just happy news. Okay, okay, we're going to move on to the last item of news this week and it's also a happy one. And it's comes from, it comes from uh, an international source. Or rather, it is an international bit of news relating to Kurdistan. So, 21-year-old Dutch Kurdish singer and songwriter Naz Mohammed, known as Naz, won two prizes this week at the Music Moves Europe Talent Awards. I've followed her progression through Twitter for a long time, and this is really thoroughly deserved. So, congratulations to her, and we hope to see more and more of her work in the coming future. Really, guys, she is just incredibly talented, and she's the sweetest person. If you'd like to follow up on what she's doing and her music, you can follow her on Instagram. It's Her handle is Bits of Naz, and that's Naz with two A's. So congratulations to her once again. And that is the end of the news for this week. Next part is an interview with a co-founder and director of Kashkol, Mary Labrosse. With me on the phone right now is the co-founder and director of Kashkol, Marie Labrosse. Marie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jill. I'm so happy to be with you today. We're really happy to have you. So reading your name, like, uh, you know, as you prepare for an interview, you read uh, the person that you're going to be interviewing their name quite a few times. And every time I did, for some reason in my head, like it, it read with a French accent, like Marie Labrosse, is it a French <laughs> name? <laughs> it is a French name, yes. So my okay. my parents are sort of responsible for the two halves of my name. So one half is is uh, very Jewish American. One half is very French American. Actually, it's Quebecois, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> Quebecois. Okay, so Canadian. Yep. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. Or do Can like uh, people from uh, Quebec not like being called Canadians because there's a whole uh, movement going on there for independence? True. I'm not totally versed about that. I'm just like aware that that's where the name comes from. <laughs> <laughs> All right. As any so, as any good American, I'm like vaguely aware of my roots, but pretty pretty. Uh, <laughs> it's it's like whenever you meet uh, Americans, whenever you talk to them, they always have some sort of idea about uh, their roots coming uh, going all the way back to Europe. But generally speaking, not a lot of people pursue it. 
but uh yeah okay i'm I'm happy that's for better my... and for worse it's a very forward-looking culture <laughs> <laughs> well i mean that's how they had to survive during uh what was it called manifest destiny oh yeah Right away into the worst parts of our, <laughs> <laughs> into the worst parts of our heritage. Yeah. Well, yeah, we can get into that. We can get into that uh, on another interview. But right now, I'm really Sounds curious good. about your work with Kushkal. Um, so you co-founded Kushkal, and you are the director now. For our listeners who may not uh, be aware of your work, would you like to introduce Kushkal? Sure. Yeah, I'd be I'd be happy to. Kashkul is the Center for Arts and Culture at the American University of Iraq, Suleimani. Yeah. Is I formed it in over the course of years. I was doing a dissertation um, in classical Kurdish poetry. That's interesting. Yes, it really is. Classical Kurdish poetry is. I mean, never, never ask a a person what their dissertation is about unless you want a real, <laughs> a real three hour conversation. But um, but classical Kurdish poetry, as as anyone who's familiar with it knows, requires so many different fluencies. It requires fluencies in in the Islamic sciences, in all of the different sciences of literature and meter that go on in Arabic, Persian, Turkish, and and all the dialects of Kurdish. Mm. Um, of course, it involves fluency in all of those different languages as well. Um, and so, you know, though I am a very dedicated student of Sirani, um, that's only one fluency among, among about (laughs) 10 that I would need to translate those poems. Honestly, you're doing better than, oh, sorry to interrupt you. (laughs) You're doing better than most diaspora Kurds who can barely even get by with one dialect. (laughs) Well, diaspora Kurds also have a special burden to learn the new languages that they, that they have to learn to get by. So I think there's room for a little mercy for everyone. Um, but, uh, so I had turned to some, some co-translators who I knew and respected. And as we worked together, I just thought, you know, they've been helping me answer my questions, but as I've gotten to know them, I'm really curious what their questions are because they had amazing stories, amazing backgrounds, um, and really wonderful minds. And so Kashkul got started when I turned to them and just said, okay, what are your questions? How can I help you? Let me be your research assistant. Um, and over the course of the last five years or so, that's developed into a really wonderful collaborative research and translation and arts environment um, that now has, you know, the second largest database for oral history in the Middle East and wow. standing partnerships with UCLA and Gene Archive, developing partnerships with Royal Holloway University London and Southampton University um, and we're really, we're really proud, and and also, I mean, quite frankly, just really happy. The work we get to do is stunning, and the people we get to work with are are even more so. Um, so that's Kashkol. Wow. So I wasn't uh, I wasn't aware of the work of Kashkol until a few months ago when a friend of mine started working with you. And uh, honestly, from what I've heard from him, also what I've read up on Kashkol myself and the work you guys have done, it's it's really mind-boggling, especially considering how lost Kurdish history and culture can be at times. There are periods where it's really difficult to get any substance out of it because the record-keeping wasn't always the best when it comes to Kurdish history. 
generally speaking, it was more uh, saved in Persian or Arabic or Turkish. Am I right? Yeah, the preservation of Kurdish records is a really interesting Rubik's Cube. Um, oh. You know, where it's, it's, I was just talking with someone this morning in Kurdistan, and, and we were talking about how all of the strengths and all of the needs of Kurdistan, both the strengths and the needs are opportunities. Yeah. And the the strength of Kurdish record keeping is the dedication of the Kurdish people to tell the truth. Um, you know, over over hundreds of years at various points, their history and, and literature have all been pretty persecuted. Um, yeah. Meaning that even though the records might have been kept, if they were centralized during the Ottoman and Persian empires in Baghdad, Istanbul, and Tehran, or other centers of those empires, um, they likely weren't categorized as Kurdish. Because, of course, most of the time, those empires didn't want a distinct Kurdish identity. Um, certainly with the formation of nation-states, um, that got more true. And anything that was categorized as Kurdish or seen as Kurdish was much more actively um, erased from the record. Um, and and any new material got harder to produce. Um, so what's interesting is that the state of Kurdish record keeping is from one perspective pretty, pretty idiosyncratic, mm. um, pretty private, pretty, um, pretty hard to access from a scholar's standpoint. And from another perspective, it's miraculous because the massive sacrifice and effort that's gone into keeping those records, protecting them. I mean, some families, for instance, when they fled a, a conflict like Halabja, yeah. were making a choice between food for their families and a suitcase of books. And many of those families took suitcases of books. Um, wow. So, you know, when you think about the number of times bombs have fallen or fire has spread or men have been stolen from their families or women have been stolen from their families, it's, it's pretty amazing that amid all that turmoil and chaos, the Kurdish people have been able to save so much. Um, so even if it's a very different landscape record-wise from the West, um, I think it's a landscape that's really inspiring and really exciting and certainly growing as well, um, which is something I'm happy Kashkul is a part of and something I'm really proud we get to support in other organizations as well, like the Kurdish Heritage Institute run by um, Mazar Khalaki and uh, like Jean Archive run by, of course, the the amazing, uh, <laughs> the amazing uh uh, the amazing brothers Rafiq and Sadiq. Wow, that is just wildly fascinating. Because again, um, despite being Kurdish myself, when I look at uh, Kurdish history, when I try to research Kurdish history, obviously I'm using and utilizing some of the same tools that is used commonly with uh, trying to research European history or rather Western history. So uh, for me, the fact that you were able to really get into that history and get so much substance out of it is just amazing work honestly as a Kurd I have to thank you uh, even 
uh, you know, as I was going through the work that Kashkul does, I'm just really fascinated by your work. And something that really got a lot of attention in Kurdistan recently and among the Kurdish diaspora recently is what uh, Kashkul did with UNESCO to get Slimani recognized as a creative city. How did that work? <laughs> That's a really, really joyful story. Um, so my partner, who um, came to Kurdistan, I've been in Kurdistan for almost 10 years. My partner joined me about a year and a half ago. Um, he was familiar with the Creative Cities Network through Manchester, um, where he's a visiting teaching fellow. Um Excuse me. And he went to visit in the spring and came back and said, you know, everything you've told me about Soleimani, everything you've told me about the history of the city, everything I've seen in terms of the the vibrance of the literary community today, I think we should apply to have Soleimani become a city of literature. And as soon as he said it, I just started laughing. I was like, that is a perfect idea. <laughs> Slimani was built for that idea. And then we started looking through the application. And I thought, oh, God, this is an application that we should take a year to do, maybe two years to do. This is going to be very, very challenging. And David said, well, my partner, David said, well, let's let's see what we can do. Let's just push into this application and see what happens. Um, because Kashkul had spent a number of years developing partnerships throughout the city um, you know, I, you were talking about how I managed to find all these things. And really, I managed to find all these resources through developing trust and then really cultivating that trust. Uh, With Americans, the local communities? Yes. Americans and Westerners in general, but, but specifically Americans, um, are pretty well known for popping in and popping right back out. Yeah. And one of the things I really wanted to do over the course of time was show people, if I say I will do something, I will do something. And even if it takes me longer than I think, even if it takes me, even if the vision changes ever so slightly, you can count on me over time throughout various projects to be the person I represent myself as being. Um because as I said, these people have, have sacrificed so much in thinking specifically of Soleimani's wonderful scholar and, and archivist, Sheikh, Sheikh Ali Karadahi. Um, mm. And all he did for me in the early years, I'm thinking of Kirkuk's Kakamin Shwani, and all he did yeah. for me in the early years of my being there. And, and that trust is pretty critical. So David said, you have all of these wonderful relationships throughout the city. Let's see what, let's see what we can do. Um, and we went to the mayor um, and the mayor's right-hand man. Uh, Dr. Haval is the mayor. Dr. Uh, Kakshamal is, is his right-hand person. Um, and it turned out that they were really excited about the idea and also uniquely positioned to help us pursue it. Dr. Haval is, received his doctorate in Kurdish literature um, and specifically the 19th century, which was pretty fun because that's my century too. Um, and... And his brother, his right-hand man, Kakshamal, is, is 
beautifully fluent in English. Both of them are wonderfully fluent in Arabic. And both of them saw the impact that the designation could have for the city, not just for Dr. Haval's term in office, but far past that. And both of them said, yes, this is an effort that we may make and not get to see the results of for very long, but the city will see these results forever. And they were really immediately committed to giving that gift to the city and to the people of the city and the people of Kurdistan. Um, and the other piece that was so beautiful about the application was the willingness of the Creative Cities Network, particularly the city of Baghdad, which is also a literary city, um, to help us. Um, yes. Dr. Sadiq, who leads the, the designation in Baghdad, really, really worked with us on this application. There was a moment at the end of the application process where we'd gotten the right letter, but from the wrong person in the UNESCO structure. It, it seemed like the right person, but it was the wrong person. And we found out and the network gave us an opportunity to get the, the right letter from the right person. Um, but we weren't there anymore. We couldn't go to Baghdad. We couldn't easily get our people down to Baghdad. And Dr. Sadiq just made himself one of our people from the very beginning, before we were even a member of the network. And that was deeply healing to me because I think I think when you get down to the level of the individual, very few individuals want to uphold the stereotypes and the long-held pain between Arabs and Kurds. But it was just particularly touching to see an Arab man put literature and possibility and connection ahead of anything else and really the first moment, from the very first moment we told him Soleimani wanted to apply, he said, of course there should be a city of literature in the north. This is so <laughs> wonderful. I have been waiting for this. This is absolutely wonderful. Tell me anything you need. There should be more Kurdish cities in this network. I am very supportive of your application. That is so heartwarming. It was amazing. And then when it came time to support us and really put, you know, put his money where his mouth is, as we say, he, he did. I mean, for three days, he raced around Baghdad getting that letter for us, with us. And um, and he's been a wonderful partner ever since. He was the first person in the network to come visit us after we got the designation. Um, wow. So just those three things made the made the application process so, so easy. Um, and of course, of course, the other person who was absolutely fundamental in the application was Kakba Bakadre from the... Um, Russian beauty minister ministry. Um, the never know how to translate it, whether it's in um, intellectual ministry or like intellectual <laughs> enlightenment in a sense. I know it's like it's sort of terrible. <laughs> yeah. um, I had to face this the other day in a poem, and I found a good solution three days after I submitted it for publication. <laughs> I was so frustrated. What was the poem? It was one of Sherko Bekas's poems called basically like a celebration of the martyrs. Um, oh, a group in Iran Kurdish who was, um, oh, I forget whether what the exact word for celebration was. It might have been a hang, um, uh, but it was uh, it was something about a hangi a hangi shaidi or something. Okay, um, that would make sense. It was one something like that, um, but it was for a group in Iran who was putting up a statue um, to commemorate a place where 
people had been shot on the street. It was really beautiful what they were doing. But but Saman and I actually, with Laja, Laja Taha and Saman Fuad, the three of us were translating that poem in rapid fire, <laughs> trying to get it out to this group in Iran. And I, I couldn't I couldn't think of the right word for Russian beauty. But anyway, um, so yes, Kakba Bakr was absolutely instrumental. I mean, really just at every turn, what we found in the application process was the city just had all the right people in place to help us and all of the right enthusiasm. And Baghdad was perfectly, perfectly excited and perfectly helpful. There was just so many wonderful things that worked out. We got an application done in two months that probably should have taken us two years. Um, Wow. So we were really pleased with that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's like a forty-page application. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and wow, the school staff thought, was also sorry, really God. helpful too. So just everything was, everyone was just really supportive and excited, and we we just couldn't have done it without every single person on the team. So well, thank you guys so much for putting in that much dedication and effort into getting Slimani recognized. It's really, I mean, for us, just being. Uh, growing up as a Kurd, just being mentioned by the outside world always felt like 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 Christmas Day, you know? You see your the the name Kurd in a book, in a Western book, and it's like, oh my God, you know, we're not we 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 haven't been forgotten by the world. But for a city, for a city that we all revere so much and we all love so much to be recognized uh, thanks to you guys is just an amazing this is the one of the best gifts you could have given Kurdish people. So thank you for that. That's really what we hoped it would be, is is a gift that would both recognize what everyone has been doing in Soleimani for so many years, and also a gift that would energize the city around all of the, all of the capacity that's there today. Um, so a gift that looks both forward and backward, that's exactly what we hoped it would be. And, and the Kurds richly deserve that. I mean, Soleimani has earned that title. Um, so... It's a gift that Suleimani has earned. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's always been known for his literature and for his culture. Um, But what were the terms for it to be recognized? How do you mean? So um, I imagine for any sort of recognition through UNESCO, there have to be certain criteria that the city meets uh, regarding its culture or its history or why this city in particular should be recognized for its uh, literary prowess. Yes. So UNESCO is looking both at the history of literature in the city and how the city has related historically to mm-hmm. literature, but also how the city supports literature in its current environment and wants to support and see literature as part of its sustainable urban development moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um And what they ask you to do is to describe that history, which of course for me is a pleasure because the Babans (laughs) founded the city with almost all of my favorite poets from the 19th century as their court poets. So I get to nerd out about, um, you know, Nali, Salem, Kurzi, all the rest of them. Um, But I also get to celebrate the rich diversity and deep commitment that the city has to poets today. So looking at the city, I mentioned Jean and KHI already, but you also see poetry being taught in all of the uh, primary and secondary school curricula. You see translation and literature at all of the universities, of which Soleimani has three, maybe four, depending on how you measure them, major universities. 
Mm. Um, you see readings popping up in galleries and cafes and um, and universities all over the city, and that's happening. I mean, at least at least five readings a week, if you count universities and and then non-university settings for those readings. And those readings are happening in multiple languages. Um, you also have Sardam Publishing House, which is um, which is amazing. You have the Gallowish Festival, which is amazing. Um, you have new film festivals popping up. I think there are two now that are that are fairly major. Mm. Um, the theater culture is incredible, and that's people not only performing but writing those theater those theater productions yeah. and directing them. It's all locally locally produced. It really is, um, and and even you have singers like Adnan Karim um, adapting both classical and contemporary poets to song lyrics. So Adnan Karim just a few years ago put out an entire CD of Abdullah Pesho um, okay. poems that he had converted into song lyrics. So that kind of that kind of richness and commitment to to funding and and keeping arts visible is what the the network is looking for because the designation is a recognition it is a celebration of what has come before but it's also really critically looking forward and asking how can literature serve the people of this city serve the city itself and contribute to the sustainable to sustainable development of the city. Um, so those were the sorts of narratives that we needed to tell. And that came with all of the normal statistics that you would think of, you know, about trying to give them a, a picture of how big the city is, how the city really works. Um, you know, the culture factory is another really wonderful institution that we got to talk about. Um, and that's still growing. The culture factory is a an old decommissioned tobacco factory very close to the bazaar, maybe two blocks away from the, the central gate of the bazaar. Um, and what they've been doing, they've, the city designated it as an arts complex, and they've been slowly um, renovating different spaces within that massive complex. And it's going beautifully. Really exciting stuff is happening in there with the visual arts, with the performing arts. Um, and, uh, and now, of course, we hope with, uh, with the literary arts. That's wonderful. You know, so you those don't are really... the sorts of narratives we told. That's really wonderful. Um, you get you don't like come uh, looking in uh, from the outside. It it doesn't really feel like every uh, a lot of these things are happening. Uh, but I guess uh, you being there working with all these projects, you would be able be better able to see it. Now I have to ask because uh, I know our listeners would like to know. Um, while you were working on all that, while you were sort of maneuvering all these little parts of the puzzle to bring it all together for the application, were you ever met with the, uh, let's say, anything that could be, that could have been seen as a hindrance to your work? Anyone telling you this shouldn't be done, uh, whether in the Kurdistan region or outside the Kurdistan region going uh, further south to Iraq? To be honest, no. Um, I've had, I'll try not to get very emotional about this. <laughs> um, I've had some of the most wonderful, 
most generous interactions with people. Um, you know, um, just a few months after we turned this application in, Trump withdrew troops from Syria and Turkey flooded into that territory and Syria made its bid as well. And the unrest in the South reached a boiling point. And, um, and then of course, recently, all of this has happened between the U S and Iran, all this recent violence between the U S and Iran on Iraqi soil. It's been a very difficult time for it's been a very difficult time for everyone and and I would have expected a lot more honestly I would have accepted I would have I would have almost welcomed it as a chance to to let people be angry um if people had been angry with me, obviously those weren't my decisions. Those are decisions I would never have made, Mm. but I am an American and I would have understood if people needed to be angry with just the most nearest American, I I would have been, I would have accepted that. I would have taken that and tried to, tried to give them a chance to be angry because they deserve to be. (laughs) I mean, but, um, honestly, the work you've done, no one took the opportunity. Um, everyone was incredibly disciplined about the difference between an individual and the state that they may or may not be fully represented by, which is, of course, something that Kurds and I, and I think Arabs as well understand in Iraq. But Kurds obviously have some particular um, obvious understanding of that. Yeah. Um, and and. Even, even a couple of times. So during the during the height of the withdrawal from Syria, um, a group in Soleimani um, held prayers outside on a Friday as a vigil, and they welcomed everyone, including some local a local a local chapter of Zoroastrians, and yeah. they arrived in in their full religious costume and. I was really touched to see that not only were they welcomed to be observers of the worship, but when the Friday prayers concluded, the mullah turned his prayer mat over to the Zoroastrian priestess who led prayers herself. And the Muslims who were there very conscientiously, you know, they are Muslims. Interfaith interaction isn't about abandoning one faith to, to respect another. So it wasn't that they were suddenly, you know, joining the Zoroastrian prayers, but they, like the Zoroastrians, stood beside and watched and observed in really respectful silence as those prayers took place. Um, and I was there because I I wanted to support it. Um, and really what people came and told me was, you are our sister. We know you are. Please, if you can, tell the world that this is who we are. If you can help us, please tell the world that this is who we are and really all we're asking is for the u.s not to get in the way of our being peaceful um i mean the leadership of of jean we sat down and we had a normal normally scheduled meeting and 
all this was happening. And at the very end of it, um, the brother said, you know, you and I are just individuals. Let's not fool ourselves that if we sit and talk about this, anything will change. But, but you know, still we can sit under the sun and talk honestly and, and clear out our hearts and, and still perhaps maybe create something together. And that sort of, um, that sort of openness and generosity and mental clarity has characterized every person I've had the pleasure to work with um, on this project. Um, so even throughout Iraq, that's been true. Even in the wider Creative Cities Network, um, many people within the network were offering to read our application in parts, were offering to give us feedback. There was really a, a consensus in the network that if if it was the right thing for the city to join, that they would really work hard to make that happen. So really, as I said, it's just a really happy story. Um, <laughs> there really isn't there really isn't a, a grimy underbelly to it, except for just a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> the grimy underbelly is just you know sixteen hours, hours and of hours. work a day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um... Jesus, I'm just I'm just really pulled it back in the best way possible because you know I've 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 been in Kurdistan a lot many many years and many times you uh, whenever you're trying to get something processed or you're trying to get something passed uh, there can be these hindrances but hearing your story hearing the way things worked and how helpful everyone was it's just uh, as I said earlier, it's just heartwarming. That's the best way to really describe it. Um, it is pretty heartwarming. There have been projects I've had. Don't don't get me wrong. I'm I'm not you know I'm, I'm not a Pollyanna. Um, there have been other projects we've worked on that have been that have hit their hit their challenges and had to slow down or had to change nature or um, or even had to be you know just put to sleep for a little while. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see if they wake up later. Um, so that that has happened, um, but that's life. Um, yeah. And this project, it was just the right project at the right time, with a lot of the right things in place for it to just be be truly lovely. Absolutely. Um, I also wanted to ask you a bit more about UNESCO in general. I know it's not your area of expertise, but uh, I thought while I have someone who uh, knows so much about it, I might as well ask. Um, so, I'll do my best. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> I'm sure you've uh, been up to date with the news about the city of Hasankeyf in uh, northern Kurdistan in Turkey. The uh, town, the historic town, which is currently being sort of, uh, it's it's sinking underwater because of the new dam project. Um, yes. In regards to that, and in regards to what you know about UNESCO, would an application towards having that city or that town recognized as a cultural heritage site would not would that not help in uh, helping the city not uh, f face this kind of this kind of fate not be left to sink underwater yes that's a big question um <sighs> The truth is, I don't know the answer to that. Hmm. The Creative Cities Network is a very different 
it, well, it's a completely different network than the network of, of heritage sites. Mm. Um, so it's a completely different, essentially, branch of UNESCO that I work with versus the the branch that, that works with cities, locations um, that are working on becoming heritage sites. And I don't know the process for that at all. Um, I do think that finding finding ways, as you said earlier in the conversation, finding ways to help to help the the international community understand the place and the value of what Kurdistan has to offer is extremely helpful. Um, and there are a lot of ways to do that. UNESCO is one, but there are other ways to do that too. Um, you know, one of the things that Kashkul has worked really hard to do is to publish um, in really great outlets. So instead of publishing in, in our own book series or our own magazine, we're really trying to publish with reputable outlets throughout the West um, to try and bridge that gap and to try and let people know. I think a lot of what happens in Kurdistan, people just don't know about it. Mm. Um and making sure that critical mass exists of people who know that something is happening and understand why it's happening and how, what the consequences of that event are, that's a big part of, I mean, that's a big part of the Kurdish struggle and identity right now. Um, Absolutely. In every part of Kurdistan, in, in the Turkish part with this particular city, um, and in every part. And trying to explain that can get really difficult because... Um, Politics can get in the way. Yeah, and because yeah. it's so complicated. I mean, we were we wanted to do... My partner and I, when the Rojava withdrawal happened, wanted to um, immediately begin publishing literature that was being written in response to that because... Kurdish poets in Turkey were writing, Kurdish poets in Syria were writing, um, obviously Kurdish poets in Iraq were responding, and we really wanted to get that to get that literature to the West and help people understand th the, these are the voices who are being killed right now. These people are these people are fleeing their homes right now um, to try and humanize what was going on so that it would be harder to do that, harder to create that strife. Um, and what we found was that even for, for people like us who are relatively well-versed in the political movements and who understand what all the acronyms mean and all the acronyms sound pretty similar to the Western ear who don't know what those acronyms stand for. Um, I mean, you start hearing PKK, PUK, KDP, YPJ, yeah. and they, it just starts all, um, to a Western mm. ear, it just sounds really complicated. Yeah. And the question is, well, how do you explain who this Syrian Kurdish writer is without losing people by making it so precise that it no longer has that humanizing effect? Um, and sometimes preci precision can help humanize, and sometimes you have to find a way to, to be open without being overly explanatory. Um, so, you know, what I would say to people facing, facing those situations and really trying to bring awareness to those sorts of 
to those sorts of massive problems and massive losses, um, or even massive possibilities on the bright side, is just be thinking about where you can place those stories, how to tell those stories, and how to get that recognition that will help that will help draw attention to those stories. Because um, I, I don't know if UNESCO is always the right place to even do that, although I think they're a wonderful place to, to begin looking to and for Kurdistan to look to more often. So going forward, how is, uh, how, what projects are there for Keshkol and uh, how can the communities in Kurdistan and outside Kurdistan help streamline the, uh, your, your process and your work uh, as much as they can? I thought this was such a sweet question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's really lovely. Um, within Kurdistan, you know, one of the things that I always tell my students is, you know, and this is, you know, this is something young people can do, is don't be bored. Be excited. Wherever you are in Kurdistan, there is something that hasn't been studied. There is something that hasn't been recorded. There is a process of shepherding or milking a goat or building a coat or writing or anything, anything, anything. There are processes that are being lost just with a young person's grandparents in their last five years of life. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I think Kurdish people can do in Kurdistan is just be excited and be really active. Go and learn how to do interviews. You can interview someone perfectly well with, with a simple phone. Um, and that interview could be the difference between a particular town from Unfal that doesn't exist being remembered and that town not being remembered. I mean, those interviews that you do just with your grandparents or your parents or your aunts and uncles or you know, even just with your friends um, can be the difference in Kurdistan between there being an archive on something and there just and that something disappearing. Um, so the greatest thing I think Kurds in Kurdistan can do is be really excited about where they are and who they are and be thinking about how to how to equip themselves better and better to serve themselves as intellectuals and also their community as intellectuals. Um, if you want to specifically get involved in Kashkul, absolutely. <laughs> we have lots of opportunities to do that. You can intern, you can, um, you can volunteer, come to our events. We have events all the time. Um, you can become a donor to Kashkul if that's interesting to you. Come be a student at the American University. We have new majors in translation. We have majors in literature and social sciences. Um, we have a really great record of getting people to graduate school. All of the first generation of, of people who worked for Kashkul full-time are now in fully funded master's programs wow. in the UK, the US, and the Emirates. So that's pretty exciting. <laughs> that is really exciting. <laughs> Um, um, and what for you Kurds said who about... are... okay. Sorry, go on, go on. And for Kurds who are in the diaspora, you know, that level of enthusiasm and awareness about what's happening in Kurdistan and celebrating Kurdistan outside of Kurdistan, that's actually really valuable. I mean, that's something that 
helps the designation quite a lot because it spreads the word and it and it helps connect us. I mean, for instance, Kurds in Diaspora, if you're living in a city that's a UNESCO creative city, let us know. Maybe we can collaborate. Maybe we can come visit. Maybe we can have you guys come visit us. Um, and certainly you can be letting your Creative Cities Network representatives, if you live in one of those cities, know how much it means to you that Sleimani and Senendaj join the network. Um, which even just hearing that from what they consider their constituents, what UNESCO Creative Cities Network create, you know, considers their constituents, that's a big deal. Um, so there are lots of things that people can do to get involved with this kind of work, with Kashkul, um, or with the Creative City, with the designation. Absolutely. And like you said, a little interview with a grandparent can serve as an archive for future uh, projects. And uh, that kind of reminded me of something uh, just yesterday. I'm currently working on this novel, uh, which has parts of its uh, story take place in 1985 in South Kurdistan in the village of Omerikada, if you are familiar with it. It's a little village that falls between Chamchamal and Kerkuk. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I love writing about that particular village. Uh, did I say city? I meant to say village, but that particular village because I have part of my part of my roots go back to the village of Omaragada. So as I'm writing, uh, there are certain things I'm not sure about, and so I call up my parents and I'm like, "How was this back then? How was this back then?" And they start telling me more and more about the uh, the the village traditions. And one village tradition that really made me laugh, perhaps because I've never been exposed to it, uh, it really made me laugh, was uh, people nowadays in parts of Kurdistan would say, if something's really offensive to them, or if, so, if something is really you know, off-putting for them, they would say, it's like being sarut, it's like being uh, without a headscarf or something. Mm-hmm. I asked why. And bareheaded. My, my, bareheaded, exactly. <laughs> and my dad explains. He says, uh, well, if you went to the villages back then, unless you were from the city, people would just chastise you <laughs> uh, for being bareheaded, just for not wearing a jamadani or mm-hmm. uh, something like that. And uh, that's something I never knew. And that's something that, generally speaking, I hadn't heard about, uh, about uh, Kurdish traditions back in the day. So that just what you said reminded me of that. And now that's going to be in my novel, which, you know, can be seen as some sort of fictional, but has uh, elements of uh, history in it. Um, That's a perfect example. That's a perfect example. And, you know, one of the things I was, Dr. Christine Allison at the University of Exeter is, um, is proposing an oral history course that she'd like to run. And, and um, she was my supervisor for my dissertation. So she was saying, maybe you could, maybe you would have a little time to come do a guest lecture for us. <laughs> and we were talking about, um, about young people in oral history and why we were so excited about this course. And one of the things I said is that it's, uh, <laughs> it's if you're truly giving someone your full attention and you're really listening, actively listening it's very hard not to not to love them it's very hard not to find what they say interesting charming valuable i mean really everyone is walking around with 
with stories to tell. Everyone and is especially, a culmination of experiences. Yes, yes. And especially in Kurdistan where where so much of what's happened, you know, as we touched on earlier in the conversation, where so much of what's happened to Kurds is really still housed in the Kurdish memory and not housed in the traditional, what we would think of as the traditional Western uh, repositories for knowledge. Because so much of it is still in that memory, every effort that's made to move that memory from someone's head onto onto a page or into a recording device is a really important move. Um, so every little conversation you have, especially if you can find a lens to narrow it, like your novel, um, I'm thinking right now of a of a Kashkul um, employee who really wanted to study the nature of devotion, when it becomes violent, how it becomes violent, and once violent, how it becomes peaceful again. And he really wanted to go back to the neighborhood he grew up in and study these tremendous young men of faith um, and how they carried their faith. And just interviewing, just interviewing the young men he grew up with about their relationship to faith was a huge journey for him. So if you find those little windows where you can narrow down the conversation, um, it'll even help you give more meaning to those to those interactions. I think your novel is a perfect example where you have something where that conversation matters to you, but also you have something that's prompting you to have that conversation with people. Um, that's a fantastic way of thinking about it. Absolutely. So Kurdish youth, if you're listening uh, with your next project, talk to your parents, talk to your grandparents, talk to your uncles and aunts and get it all into history or just tell it in a story. That would be a wonderful way to preserve our traditions and our history. Absolutely. Uh, Don't be afraid. Be excited. Absolutely. And on that note, I just want to thank you again so much, not only for coming on the podcast, but for working with Kurdish history, getting our cities recognized, and really dedicating so much of your time to Kurdish history. I can't, honestly, I cannot thank you enough or thank you profusely enough for the work you've done. It's, it's been an honor and a privilege. And that is all from us for this week at the What Happened Last Week in Kurdistan podcast. If you'd like to keep up with us and see what we're up to, you can follow us at our Instagram at WHLW under dash Kurdistan. And from there, you can find links to the newsletter as well to our Patreon if you'd like to support us there. I have been your host. I am Gilles Shouani, and I hope you all have a great week. <laughs>